This morning, Mark 15, starting in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. May God bless the preaching of his word. John wrote the things that he did about Jesus so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. It's quite a claim, really. Jesus is the Son of God. And eternal life is available in his name to all who believe. John isn't the only one who makes this claim. In Matthew, everyone from demons to disciples call out that Jesus is the Son of God. In Luke, the angel tells Mary that her son, lowercase s, will be God's Son, capital S, Satan, tempting Jesus to reject the Father's authority, begins each challenge. If you are the Son of God, Mark, from which I've just read, starts his book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the same title is used here at the end, the book's theological and emotional peak, truly this man is the Son of God. As we wrap up our time in John and prepare to move to Isaiah, we're taking a brief detour this morning, more topical than specifically exegetical. The central claim of John's gospel is a profound one. But is it reasonable? And is it true? Is Jesus the Son of God? And is there life to be had only in his name. When people are skeptical of Christianity, this isn't typically where they start. The skeptic wants to start by demanding answers from you for the things they find obviously unbelievable, the opening chapters of Genesis or the miracles of the Exodus. They want you to defend the problematic morality of the patriarchal times or the peculiar regulations of the Levitical age. But it's the Gospels which were written so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Gospel writers understand that the believability of everything else in the Christian faith can rest firmly on the foundation of this one claim. It's central to the Christian faith. After all, it's called Christianity because he is the Christ. We are called Christians because we are followers of Christ, trying to be like Christ. In the history of the world, there have no doubt been many who claimed to be the Son of God. Anyone who makes such a claim is, as C.S. Lewis's trilemma summarizes, either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, the one true Son of God. 
There are no other options. And the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus of Nazareth is that one, not a liar, nor a lunatic, but the Lord. The claim is also most important because it's a saving claim. It's salvific. Believing in this claim, says the Christian religion, is the only way a person can be freed from their bondage to sin in this life. The only way they can be freed from the consequence of their sin in eternity. And the only way they can find everlasting life in the joyous presence of God. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is all enough to demonstrate that all of Christianity, every word, rises or falls on this one claim. But another reason can be helpful in our defense of starting here rather than with the serpent or the exodus or the many other questions the skeptic will have. The Gospels that make this central claim also make many other claims and from various parts of scripture. Jesus alone quotes or references as being God's word all five books of the Pentateuch, eight of the prophetic books, and many, many psalms. If these gospels are theologically and historically reliable, then the older writings they affirm must be also. And they provide an affirmation that we could not otherwise produce. Modern historians have tools, manuscripts, contemporaneous documents. We have all these things that we need to judge the Gospels as historically reliable. And while it's true that we have much less of that for the books of the Old Testament, we do have this, that if the Gospels are reliable... They reliably testify to what God said and revealed in those ancient times. We have testimony from one who was there even at the beginning when God said, let there be. And he tells us, if he is to be believed, that all the words of scripture are true. So if it's that straightforward, If there's that much evidence, why doesn't everyone believe? And another question, if scripture is God's self-revelation, isn't God the only one who can authenticate it to us? What or who besides God could prove this claim is true? And if there's evidence for the claim Where does it fit when it comes to whether or not Christianity will be believed? All these answers are, of course, connected. So that's what I want for us to consider this morning. Let's consider the case for the reliability of the Gospels and therefore all of Christianity. But then let's ask why belief and unbelief aren't about the strength of that case. And finally, consider the graciousness of God in his self-revelation. The reliability of the Gospels is critical because they contain the central claim and because in them we have the affirmations of the Old Testament's claim. 
The reliability of all the epistles, the New Testament letters, is related because the epistles' authors reference one another as being reliably of God because they're consistent with what the Gospels teach. So it all comes down to the case for these four Gospels. Are they an authentic representation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth? And you answer that really with two questions. The first, is it reasonable to believe the words that we're reading in our English Bibles are the words that the actual first century authors wrote down, translated, of course, into English? And to answer this, we need to know about the copies from which our English translations came. There are no original manuscripts for about anything this old, biblical or otherwise. Everyone, theologians, historians, scholars, literature critics, everyone, no matter what they're studying in this period of time, is dealing with copies. Tacitus wrote his Roman history about 60 years after the Synoptic Gospels, maybe 30 years after John. We have 20 copies of that work, the earliest from about 1100 A.D., 1,000 years after Tacitus wrote. Modern translations of Tacitus' history are considered historically reliable. The most impressive collection of ancient manuscripts is for Homer's Iliad, written about 900 B.C. We have a fragment that is as early as 400 B.C., 500 years later. Now, it only has 13 of Homer's 15,000 verses, but still it's quite impressive. It's that old. In total, we have nearly 650 ancient copies or fragments of Homer's great story. More impressive is how accurate those copies are. Accuracy is estimated by the consistency of the collection. A high percentage of words that are the same across each copy or fragment allows us to be confident that what we're reading in the copies is what was written on the original long-gone manuscript. The 643 copies of the Iliad demonstrate a remarkable 95% accuracy. Only 5% of the words in all those manuscripts and fragments are inconsistent with one another. And that's why modern translations of the Iliad are considered to be a reliable transmission of Homer's original tale. Now, For the New Testament, you may have heard the number 25,000 mentioned before. It's true. Compared with the Iliad's 643, we have about 25,000 copies or fragments of the New Testament before the invention of the printing press. But let's work only with the older evidence for a while. It's smaller in number, but it's a very impressive case. We have 5,800 manuscripts or fragments in the ancient Greek the original language of the first manuscripts. We have over a hundred manuscripts or fragments that are older than 400 A.D. P52 is a fragment from John's Gospel that we just read. It is as early as 100 or 125 A.D. It is stunning to see, a mere 10 or 30 years after John's death. 
And the Codex Sinaiticus is a complete copy of the New Testament from around 350 A.D. But it's the consistency of these copies that is truly astonishing. Since we have so many, we might expect there to be more variation and less reliability from copy to copy. Yet using the same math that we use to calculate Homer's Iliad, the consistency of the New Testament manuscripts and fragments is calculated at 99.5%. It is indisputable evidence that what's written in our Bibles today is what was written in the original manuscripts. A number that you hear thrown around by really TV programs on the issue, is 400,000. They love to say there are nearly 400,000 variants in these biblical manuscripts. Can you believe it? And they're correct. When you go back to that 25,000 number, 25,000 manuscripts, you do find about 400,000 variants. That's a lot. And then you do the division, and it's about 16 variants per manuscript. And honest skeptics have to admit what we're counting with that number because the vast majority of variances in New Testament manuscripts are differences in spelling. Scholars and writers copying books of the Bible by hand or hearing it read to them and then writing it down from time to time, they would spell a word wrong or put a verb in the wrong tense. And so of the 400,000 textual variants... 1,500 were deemed consequential enough to include in the definitive modern edition of the Greek New Testament. 1,500 matter at all. Those are often captured in the footnotes of your English Bible. You may not notice them very often because only two of those 1,500 involve more than one or two verses. That's Mark 16 and John 8 that we talked about in Sunday school. So the variants exist, yes. For 0.5% of the words in your English Bible, we are less than 100% certain what the original manuscript said. And God be praised, not one of those creates any confusion about what we are to believe or what we are to do. And if you believe in the Holy Spirit, that should come as no surprise whatsoever. You also sometimes hear the Bible attacked as untrustworthy because of supposedly purposeful changes. The History Channel loves to run a program claiming that they, the church, rewrote the Gospels to cement their own religious power. They wanted it in the hands of Peter. Of course, I hope that we, having just finished the Gospel of John, would chuckle just a little bit at that suggestion. Though Peter is gloriously reconciled to Christ in the end, are these Gospels what you would write if your goal was to convince people that Peter should be the supreme leader of an organized religion? I have my doubts. No, the historical record we find instead, the contemporaneous to the Bible historical record, shows purposely, faithfully, identifying and transmitting the manuscripts as they were originally received. 
there were a lot of false gospels floating around over the years. And the early Christians would evaluate the authorship. Who wrote it? Who claims to have written it? They would evaluate the doctrinal consistency. Is this consistent with what Jesus taught and with what the Old Testament teaches? They would evaluate how widely those books and letters were accepted by the other Christian churches. What do the other Christians think about this writing? There were the Gnostic books, those books that claimed to contain secret knowledge that Jesus had only given to some select VIPs. And they were reviewed and then widely dismissed and ignored by the churches. There are the apocryphal books, the books that are filled with folklore concerning the times in Jesus' life about which the Gospels are silent. And the earliest church reviewed them and recognized them as non-inspired and not authoritative to the church. There were no major controversies. There were no politically manipulated votes. There was just an organic process by which the people of God searched these books under the Spirit of God and discerned by His Spirit what was of God and what was not. And they would look to one another within the unity of the body for agreement. We answer the first question then with a resounding yes. It is absolutely reasonable to believe that the words in our Bible are faithful to what the first century authors wrote. The second question of authenticity is this. Is it reasonable to believe that those original authors told the truth? Okay, we have exactly what they wrote, but is what they wrote what was true about Jesus? Internal evidence for this is the consistency I already described. That the message of the Gospels, including this central salvific claim, is incredibly unified. The whole Old and New Testaments fit together in beautiful harmony. God's revelation is free from error and contradictions in all that it teaches, despite being written by all of these many different authors across many different times and places. We find the central teachings are a united whole. They provide clarity and unity from Genesis to Revelation. And there's also plenty of external evidence that these authors wrote the truth. That these Gospels were written during the time of eyewitnesses is really important. And we think about that first from the positive side. Those who wrote were eyewitnesses or were standing with eyewitnesses hearing testimony as they wrote. But think about it from the other side as well. These books, these gospels were published. They were sent out into the world while eyewitnesses were still alive to read them. Others who had lived through these exact same events. Kids, if I came out of the worship service this morning and wrote a newspaper in the Atlanta Journal that claimed that we had 500 people in worship that I had preached the best sermon in the history of the world, and that at the communion table I turned water into wine, what do you think would happen? My claim would be disproven pretty quickly, wouldn't it? The evidence of so many eyewitnesses who would read that article and say, that's not what happened at all. He didn't do any of that. People would ask you what you saw, and you would say, None of that, and no one 
would believe me. The gospel writers published these books into the community of eyewitnesses. But what you find in the historical record of the first few centuries is not evidence of people lining up to dispute the gospel claim. You don't find these texts being destroyed because the surrounding world knew they were nonsense. You don't find a consolidated case that these men had made these things up. In fact, you find the opposite. Historians affirm that Jesus of Nazareth, born under peculiar out-of-wedlock circumstances, then had a public ministry of teaching and performing miracles that many claim to have seen, and that he gathered a following and that he gathered disciples. And that in the course of his ministry, he fell into disfavor with the Jewish authorities and the Roman government. And that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate between 26 and 36 AD. There aren't any credible manuscripts or fragments that claim anything else. And that is stunning if all of this were made up. The behavior of Jesus' followers after his death also makes the point. If you followed a man who claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and then that man was executed in shame and did not rise from the dead, what would you do? This has happened throughout history, and cults and sects that put these leaders up on these pedestals and then they crash out in infamy and death, they disperse. They disappear from history. They pretend none of this happened. But the crucifixion of Jesus did not put an end to Christianity, did it? In fact, the scriptural and the historical records both tell us the same thing, that after Jesus' death, Christianity grew exponentially and it spread to every corner of the world. Many converts endured harsh persecution. Because within 50 years of these events, under the emperor, they refused to deny that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Nearly all of the disciples faced horrific martyrdoms. The same men who previously scattered at even the threat of arrest. A couple Roman soldiers show up at a garden and they're gone. Is it reasonable to believe that all of these new converts and that these disciples would go to these ends for what they knew to have been made up. No, what's more reasonable is to believe that the Bibles we have are faithful reflections of the original manuscripts and that those original manuscripts are faithful reflections of what really happened. And that's why it's rational and reasonable to believe the central claim and thus all the claims of Christianity, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So I've given you my most persuasive case. The evidence is overwhelming. So why doesn't everyone believe? Is it that they haven't heard the evidence? No, It's that when it comes to the evidence for Christianity, order is everything. 
for someone who does not believe, even overwhelming evidence cannot change their minds. I was reading this week on pathos.com. It's, quote, the website of choice for the millions of people looking for credible and balanced information about religion. Bob Seidensticker is a frequent contributor there. He often critiques what he sees as the irrationality of the case for Christianity and its claims. And one of his articles was about the New Testament manuscripts. He used almost all of the numbers that I gave you this morning. And at the end of that article, with all of that evidence, he says this. Of course, all of this is simply a process to get back to the original books. But even if we had them, they would still tell an ancient supernatural story with nothing more to recommend it than any other ancient supernatural story. Unbelievers aren't so because of a lack of evidence. And neither are believers because of the abundance of it. The evidence for Christianity is there, yes, but it doesn't prove the case. It only affirms what by faith we already know to be true. Christianity is true not because of a lot of good manuscripts. It's true because in Christianity, the true God of the universe has revealed himself. During Jesus' own ministry, lots of people heard his teaching and saw him perform miracles. And lots of people walked away from him in unbelief. Lots of people had access to the best information available firsthand, their own eyewitness account. And yet lots of people were not changed by it. In Mark, we read, And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Jesus has been traveling around for years, teaching, preaching, and performing miracles. These men are the religious leaders of Israel, the most aware of God's messianic promises. So why didn't they believe? When the Pharisees and rulers interact with Jesus in the gospel, do you see them as searching for truth? No. We see them as trying to trap him into saying something they can use against him. Do we see them as trying to understand what he did and how it did or did not fulfill the scriptures, God's promises? No, we see them trying to understand how he works toward or against their own purposes and desires. They ask the right question, are you the Christ? And he told them that he was. All these signs proved that he was. So much evidence available to them. But did they believe? No. And not because of the evidence, but because without faith, which only God can give, there is no evidence that can overcome our own personal preferences and expectations. Until God changes a heart, we believe what we want to believe. 
Many who reject Christianity today do so because they can't reconcile what Christianity says, not with facts or evidence, but with what they want to be true. It has nothing to do with logic, nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with reason. It's deeply personal. The most honest thing you will ever get an unbeliever to say, and truly God bless the ones who will say it because they were out there, is I don't want to believe. Now we're getting somewhere. The evidence for the reliability of the Christian claim is overwhelming. And it does the Christian soul good to have what we believe so logically affirmed by manuscript records and historical evidence that these things cannot cause anyone to believe. And so they cannot be at the heart of our evangelism. Any evangelistic method that focuses on these things is missing the mark, no matter how well-intentioned it may be. The focus, the heart of evangelism is prayer. It's prayer. It's why we have a bulletin board in the hall with a list of names and initials on it. It's why Craig prays for those names and initials in nearly every corporate prayer. It's why our session prays together for your unbelieving family and friends. Only a work of God's spirit can regenerate those who do not believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What happens when evidence abounds, but faith has not been given by God? Well, just look to the religious rulers. Look at all those who walked away from Christ's ministry. Look at the many today who persist in their unbelief despite there being more evidence for the central claim of Christianity than for any single point in their worldview. Evidence cannot make anyone believe. But what happens when God first gives faith? That's this morning's text. Yes, I remember. The sermon did have a text. It was Mark 15.39. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The historian Polybius remarked that centurions were chosen by merit, but not so much for their courage, as for their strength of mind, their deliberation, their consistency. They were reasonable and self-controlled men. The centurion was no fool. And he was certainly no friend of this Jewish sect. This is a very complicated moment in redemptive history. The savior of the world. It's on the sign. The king of the Jews hangs on a Roman cross soon to die, and then dead. 
No last minute coming off the cross. No surprise freedom from this death. No, he died. And yet in stark contrast to many others around him, it's the centurion who sees with the eyes of faith and who understands. When the day began, he probably thought that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic. He had dealt with insurrectionists before. And yet now, when the time came with all the evidence before him, he believed. Truly, this man was the Son of God. For him, for us, for all who believe, it is the same faith comes first. God must teach and persuade our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. Then, with faith first, we'll see just how much there is out there that affirms that claim. We'll see that our belief is rational, that philosophical proofs abound. We'll see that our belief is reasonable. It's affirmed by the evidence of history, the best evidence. We'll see that Christianity is not unacceptable to the logical mind, only to the fallen, unregenerate mind. And that is the graciousness of God. You see, we would have designed a religion that makes rebels earn their way back into saving grace. Our religion would have standards for what is enough good works, enough right behavior, enough right attitude, enough sufficient measure of devotion. Our religion would require people to see and believe and follow our own preferences and desires, whether or not those correspond to reality or are supported by evidence. And in our religion, not one single person would actually be saved. If not by preference, and if not by evidence, how does anyone ever come to believe the one claim that can save them? You see, we were by nature children of wrath. But God, but God, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, that no one may boast.